I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the third episode in this series of Close Readings, looking at the way that history changed in the Romantic period. I'm Rosemary Hill. I'm a contributing editor at the LRB, and I'm delighted to be joined this week by Rowie Sweet, Professor of Urban History at the University of Leicester. Hello, Rowie. Hello, Rosemary. Last time, we saw how, by the mid-19th century, Britain had been taken over, really, by a kind of mania for all things Scottish, and Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were established in their great Gothic granite fantasy at Balmoral, and how quite a lot of this was the work, direct and indirect, of Walter Scott. Well, this week we're going to go back to France and look at a medieval object which played an important role in how history changed in this period, how it was understood and how it was misunderstood, and that's the Bayer tapestry. We do know that it wasn't really a tapestry. It isn't really a tapestry. It's an embroidery. But putting that to one side, up to this point, the history of the tapestry is largely obscure. It had been in the Cathedral of Bayer. It was shown once a year and it was kept in a wooden chest. During the revolution, there were two very serious attempts to destroy it. It was saved on the first occasion by the chief of police in Bayeux, who actually moved it into his office and more or less sat on it. By the time we get to our period, it was on a roller and in very poor condition. So, Rowie, how and why did it come to assume such enormous importance during this period? Well, I think one of the main reasons is that Napoleon and many others realise that it's highly topical because what it depicts is a successful invasion from Normandy of England. And Napoleon, of course, has been lining up his ships in the Channel, hoping for an opportunity to invade England for many years. And come the Peace of Amiens, when the English are coming over the Channel to look at the art collections that Napoleon has looted from Italy... They also come and see one of the treasures that Napoleon has had moved from Bayeux, which is the tapestry, because they too are interested in seeing this illustration of this pivotal moment as they see it in their own national history. Napoleon sees it as a kind of exemplar of what he would hope to achieve. The English see it as the founding event in, or a founding event in national history. So it's got very clear political topicality. And it's also appealing to other interests, other narratives that are going on, the growth of interest in Anglo-Saxon past, which has really been developing in the later 18th century. And so the tapestry as a critical source for studying Anglo-Saxon history is also very much at the forefront of people's minds. So the tapestry is not just a document about an event in national history, but it's also a document that can be read or interpreted for information about a period of history that has relatively few other sources. 
I should say that neither of us would cast ourselves as specialists on this particular object. The reason that we're interested in it is that it brings into focus an enormous amount about antiquarianism in the Romantic period. It brings up the questions of collaboration, of extraordinary leaps and bounds in historical understanding, but also the question of, if not fakes, then quite interesting mistakes, which then get perpetuated and become myths. And it also brings us very close to the role, which is often obscured, of women in the whole business of antiquarianism. So, Rowie, we, we thought we'd start off by talking about Charles and Anna Stoddart um, and their efforts with the Bayer tapestry. Yes, and I think what's interesting about this pair, and they are married by this stage, is the fact that neither of them are trained professionals in studying the past. It's, for for Charles, it's an interest that he had as a child. He was read Gothic tales by his aunt, but he develops it as an artist. And for Anna, it's really just curiosity. And yes, family connections. Her brother was a keen antiquary and a friend of Charles, but she's in effect a self-taught. And this is such a, they're, well, they're both in a way self-taught and this is such a common trait, I think, amongst antiquaries that it's this element of autodidactism that they're people who acquire knowledge through their own practice and so as an artist being observant, as an architect being observant or lawyers are very often antiquaries because they're dealing with these documents all the time. So I think they're very representative of that way in which antiquarianism is combined with other occupations or simply an extension of curiosity and the fact that anybody can become an antiquarian if they have that curiosity. There aren't institutional barriers there. And I think the really interesting thing about the way they approach the tapestry and Charles in particular is the way that he talks about it as a material object. The paper that he writes for Archaeologia, it's absolutely fascinating because it's the first time anybody has really interrogated it as a piece of fabric with needlework and the evidence of the stitches and the state that the fabric's in, the extent of wear. And he's using this information that he's gleaning from the condition of the tapestry to draw conclusions about it. Well, yes, as you say, I mean, they are absolutely central casting antiquaries. I mean, on the one hand, there are no institutional barriers, which is why Stoddart's wife can get involved. Um, But also there are no institutional supports either. I mean, if you weren't an autodidact as an antiquary, what could you be? There was nowhere that you could go and study or train. So in a way, everybody is um, on a level playing field. And the point about the Bayer tapestry and all the sorts of things that the romantic antiquaries were interested in is that they are what were generally called their national antiquities, mm. so not classical antiquities. So you didn't have to read Greek and Latin. You didn't have to be able to afford to go on a grand tour. You could just pot around your local church, dig up your nearest garden. And then that takes you on to what you were beginning to talk about, this idea that you don't just give 
We might later on talk about what's the difference between a historian and an antiquary, because that's a very fuzzy area at this time. I, th- I would argue it's still a fuzzy it's area. Still a fuzzy it's area. Still, yes, exactly. a lot of historians are still antiquaries. They just don't realise. They just it. don't like to be told that because there's something still a bit pejorative about someone. Mere is always the adjective in front of antiquary, but this idea that you don't give priority to the written text, and so using the Bayer tapestry is, is is a very typical antiquarian method. Yes, and. What's so appealing about the Bayer Tapestry to so many people is that it actually depicts people in all their different aspects. It's not just about the political constitutional change. You can actually see people as they lived and what they looked like, looked like, what they wore, what their agricultural implements were like, what their hairstyles were like. And there's a lot of interest in hairstyles as a means of documenting different ages in the past at this period. So the Bayer Tapestry is not just politically topical, it's also appealing to a way of thinking about the past, which is really beginning to emerge in this period, which is thinking about the manners and customs of the past, the everyday life, the way people lived, and the lives not just of the kings and the abbots and the um, military leaders, but the everyday people who populate the tapestry, along with the horses and the other flora and fauna that we see on the tapestry. Well, yes, and also quite a lot of rude bits. When they um, came to discuss who could have possibly done it, there was a whole school of thought that it couldn't possibly have been done by ladies. Well, no. Um, So... Yes, as you say, manners and customs, that alongside curiosity is the great antiquarian kind of touchstone. Mm. And of course, I mean, basically, it's a strip cartoon. So you can follow it along. It's not necessarily clear. And indeed, it's still not entirely clear to people exactly what the story is that it tells beyond that, that the invasion happened. And also, of course, as the war came towards its end... On both sides of the channel, because there's a lot of antiquarian collaboration despite the war, partly because there were so many refugees in England, this idea of the reconstruction of English past, but also the reconstruction of Anglo-Normandy. And as people got more and more interested in Gothic architecture, medieval architecture, and wondered how much of it was Saxon, and increasingly they realised that probably not that much of the architecture was Saxon, it probably was Norman. So there was this great bond, and it was really one of the first things that the Society of Antiquary, which Antiquaries, which was um, on the whole rather kind of snoozed through this period, but they did get themselves together the minute that peace was established to send someone over to Bayer to get the whole thing documented. Yes, and I think this is very typical of Society of Antiquaries in this period. Very little is done unless there's one energetic individual behind it. And this is what happened that um, Stoddard was sent by people like Hudson Gurney, the Norfolk banker, and he goes out there and does this amazing job in recording the tapestry and taking those wax impressions. And it's because of their energy that anything happens. I mean, apart from that... For well, the... Hudson Gurney, of course, had been mm. out yes. in, um, during the 100 happen. days and sends this extraordinary account of how he gets to Bayer and the tapestry is on, by this stage, no longer in that great chest which we know exists. It was on a big roller. So you turn the handle and it goes across the table and you can look at it. And in that way, of course, Hudson Gurney was going back to an earlier idea of antiquarianism, which is not to, as we think of it, and as it became in this period, to fight for preservation. He was quite 
accepting, we were sorry, but he accepted the fact that probably it wouldn't last much longer. So the imperative to document it was because it just wouldn't be there anymore. Yes, exactly. So many of the antiquaries of the 18th century talked about preservation in terms of simply making a drawing or an engraving, a record, so that its memory would be preserved rather than the actual physical object. And what we see changing in the late 18th and early 19th century is the idea that actually it's a physical object that needs to be preserved. And so somebody like Richard Goff, who was a director of Society of Antiquaries in the late 18th century, he's actually quite ambivalent about the um, taking of drawings and engravings. I mean, he sponsors many of them, but he's also quite ambivalent because he's very aware that a lot of people say, oh, well, we've taken an engraving of it. We don't need to preserve it. We exactly. can knock it down now. Exactly. The corporation wishes yes. up to blow, the, to blow up the castle, yes. but never mind. We've got a drawing of it. Well, I mean, that, of course, is an argument still in conservation yeah. today. Yeah. But obviously, if in, in this situation where the thing itself was just physically so fragile. So Charles Stoddart got sent off, as you say, one or two energetic individuals while the rest of the Society of Antiquaries nodded on. And the drawings that he made are, I think, are they a third actual size, I think? Yes. And so he set, set out to draw. But what he also did as he went along, was he could see where, which textile conservators still do this, you can see where there are needle holes, which are, where the thread has gone, but sometimes there's a little trace tiny trace, yeah. yes, a little bit of colour. Mm. And so in his drawings, he makes what he refers to as notional reconstructions. Yeah. And this is really where both the, the great leap forward in understanding the tapestry and the great leap sideways into mythology both happen at the same time. Yes, because what he does with those needle pricks and the fragments of the the wool with colour is that he reconstructs what he thinks took place. And so, well, this is always the problem with... um, archival research of any kind, whether it's the fragments of a diary or whether it's the fragments of an account book or the fragments of a buyer tapestry. It demands a certain amount of interpolation and interpretation. And Stoddard indulged in that like any antiquary might. And he, some of his reconstructions certainly seem to be plausible, but some less plausible. Well, this is also where Anna comes in. Yes. Because Anna Stoddard who, as you say, her brother was an antiquary. Her brother, Kemp, Alfred Kemp, was the reviews editor at the Gentleman's Magazine. So they're all very much moving around in this world. Um, And Anna, though she, as was obligatory at that time, introduced her her book of travels in Normandy by saying this was a little tour for the fireside. She was a very elegant lady. Of course, there was no question of being paid for anything. It was all just amateurish, frivolous fun. And of course, when you read it, you realise it isn't at all. She's just as much of an antiquary as her husband. She's climbing down into church vaults and drawing things. So they were travelling together while he was drawing the tapestry. And Anna, who later on became a successful romantic novelist, we might note. Well, historical um, novelist. Historical novelist. Yes. And she was. they were trying to work out, in very good faith, what story the tapestry tells. Because it's not... I mean, there's the battle, of course, but it's not entirely clear whose side it's on. And that's the point at which Anna and Charles and everybody else was facing the question of what do you look at? Do you look at the written texts or do you look at the actual object itself? And, of course, previously, anything written was given priority. But the Stoddarts decided they would look at the tapestry itself as well. Yes, and this brings up quite a 
different interpretation of some key events, the most famous of which, of course, is the death of Harold. Because if you look at the text of a tapestry where it says Harold was killed, it shows a fallen person with moustaches, so it must be a Saxon, uh, with a sword in his leg, presumably Harold dead. But Stoddard probably didn't think that was a sufficiently romantic kind of death. It's a bit um, not quite um, dignified enough to be killed with a sword in your leg. So there's another figure next to it where Stoddard thought he could detect an arrow going into the eye. And he came to the conclusion that this was actually Harold and this was how he died with the Harold with an arrow in his eye. And this is obviously the classic postcard material of a biotapestry now. This has become the postcard of, of the history. I mean, I think Charles and Anna did this together, really, because Anna was looking, obviously, at the tapestry. But this is where, the, of course, the written sources are not so reliable because their attempts to work out what's going on in the tapestry and where it was made and who was responsible for it and everything coincided with the publication of the first volume of John Lingard's History of England. And John Lingard wasn't terribly interested in this period. He's really keen to kind of get on towards the Reformation. And he simply took what was said in the Chronicles. Mm. And there's no reliable, consistent account of Harold's death. They're completely contradictory and all written long after the event. But there is, and until this moment, if you look at history paintings of the death of Harold, of which there are some, he is always shown on the ground with this thigh wound. But there was this one chronicle which suggests which refers to an arrow in the eye there are other accounts which say that he was wounded in the eye and that he will return in England's hour of need etc 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 but no one had taken it very seriously but anyway Lingard just thumbed through the chronicles and wrote it down and of course the Stoddarts fell on this because it's a much more narratively satisfying end what I think is then interesting is that I mean I say they didn't do anything to the tapestry itself they just well, Charles just drew in, joined, yes, literally joined yes. the dots yeah. and made it into an arrow. But, of course, later on, when the, the actual physical tapestry was restored, it was restored according to those drawings. And so the arrow went into Harold's eye and into history. And I think it's quite interesting that even now, in the recent BBC programme... It's not even questioned. Well, like, people just really don't want to go there. Yeah. Um, they, because it would be... I mean, this really is at the heart of romantic antiquarianism. It would (laughs) unpick for us. Very good. I see what you did there. Um, That the the, the idea that the history we have is the history we want. And we really, really want the arrow in Harold's eye. We really don't want to think that it wasn't there um, until the 1820s. So that's... That's one side of romantic antiquarianism, romanticising history, giving us myths. But I think we should also, in fairness to the Stoddarts, point out that Charles Stoddart's paper when he came back from Bayer and gave a paper to the Society. He didn't mention that at all. Well, he didn't mention that at all, but what I was going to say was... <laughs> no, well, I think... I mean, he does He does say, look, you know, I've made these notions yeah. of reconstruction, but see, he's not touched the tapestry. No, no. Um, apart from those wax casts, yes, which I think yeah. would have curators fainting now, but... And possibly taking a little fragment. Oh, well, that's... A, yes, that was... May have been Eliza. But anyway, his paper on the history of the tapestry is an absolute exemplar of how you can use material objects rather than texts because everyone was saying, the the argument was, 
It was assumed it was done by women. Was it Harold's queen, Matilda, or was it the Empress Matilda later on? And Stoddart makes the very obvious point that anyone who commissions a work of art on this scale, whether it's a stained glass window, would be depicted in it. And he said, well, she's, no, neither of them are there. So they, they're not to do with it. And then he makes the even more, I think, intelligent kind of policeman-like deduction that there are figures in the tapestry who are named but not explained and we don't know who they are, but they must have been people Known who were very the fam- pa- yes, exactly. the patron who commissioned it. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, again, that's not something that many people pick up on at the time. It's the kind of passing comment that you often find actually in antiquarian material. That there's a lot of insight, but because it's being written as an antiquarian essay in archaeology, it doesn't filter through necessarily into wider discussions and wider debates because it reflects then as now that there was a gulf between antiquarian writing and historical writing, a gulf that's sometimes bridged, but very often these kinds of the insights of antiquarianism don't actually have an impact on the grand narrative of historical writing until much, much later. They don't, but and also the other thing that happened then, and indeed I'm afraid to say happens now, is that people, and this was true of the discovery of the origins of the pointed arch, people have got themselves into such entrenched positions that long after the facts have been established, they are still fighting the same argument. So in, within the Society of Antiquaries, where they were very well aware of each other, the Abbé de la Rue, who is absolutely committed because he's only going to use texts to analyse the tapestry, so he's absolutely committed to it being a much later work, carries on, as the evidence against him mounts, he carries on getting more and more determined to say that it's a work of the Empress Matilda and to say that it must be because it doesn't appear in people's will, in royal wills, and to take um, absence of evidence as evidence of absence. A very common feature of antiquarian argument, yes. And other kinds of argument. Exactly, and Stonehenge must have been built after the Romans because they would have mentioned it if it had been there. Exactly. Yes, and it reflects also the division between those who, as you say, rely on the text as the ultimate authority and those who rely or who appreciate the material objects can actually fill in a lot of gaps that are left by the the written record. Well, of course, and I mean, the, the, the... the very obvious but often forgotten point is that people do not describe in detail things which they and their contemporaries all know about. Yes. But they will, by the same token, you can rely on them, as um, Dawson Turner and others pointed out with the architecture. They're not going to describe the architecture around them because everyone can see it. On the other hand, when they depict it, they're not going to get it wrong either yes. for the same reason. So you can rely. When he, yes. they look at the architecture, they say, well, it's Norman. Yeah, and this is something that's been developing really since, well, certainly since the um, mid-18th century. So you have people like Charles Littleton, who was an earlier um, president of the Society of Antiquaries, who actually realised that medieval manuscripts could be really helpful in identifying the point at which the rounded arch evolved into the pointed arch, because... Like Joseph Strutt and others, he realised that the people who illuminated the manuscripts were depicting the costume, the architecture of their own time, not some supposed historic period. So 
Noah and his children are going to appear in the same garb as Hercules and all the pantheon of gods, so, because it's contemporary. And Littleton realised that actually medieval manuscripts do depict buildings. And so if you know roughly when the medieval manuscript was created and it shows a rounded arch, well, then you can assume that rounded arches that look like that would be roughly coeval with that. And so this kind of deduction from the visual culture or material culture through and cross-referencing it, triangulating it with the textual evidence is something that the antiquaries are really starting to build together in throughout the second half of the 18th century. Yes, and not only, um, and as you said earlier on, moustaches and things, yes. but facial hair is a thing that the Saxons have and the Normans don't. Yes. So this is a very easy way of sorting out who is who and understanding what the narrative is. Um, as a, I mean, Eliza Stoddart's problem, in a way, if you like, was that she was she just felt that for Harold to just be dead on the ground like that was just too undignified. It was undignified. It was a slur. Though, I mean, of course, one thing everyone agrees about was that there was something else at the end of the tapestry yes. that the end has torn off. But she wanted, well, you know, she's a romantic novelist. She wants a romantic novelistic ending yes. with some drama. But of course, then. It is, as you say, exactly that. You have to triangulate the evidence. And the fact that the tapestry was restored in the 1840s, according to the drawings of the 1820s, meant that when Freeman came along, Lord Freeman, just uh, to analyse it and to, as he thought, to vindicate the antiquarian method yes. by, he said, you know, we have to rely on the tapestry for the yeah, evidence. we've got to triangulate it, yeah. But he didn't look, he didn't think of anything else. So, of course, he was citing it as the oldest authority, when in fact it was the newest. Yes. And, yeah, and antiquaries, although they're attentive to material evidence, aren't above being deceived by material evidence. That if they are aware of the possibility for um, materials to be faked, and if you like, the growing antiquarianism spawns the fake in some ways because it's only through attention to the material culture of the past and increasing awareness of how styles change and how the you can actually date something by its appearance. It's only when you have that knowledge that you can actually produce a fake which can be convincing or not. And so the proliferation of forges and forgeries and fakes in this period is that the flip side to the more specialist antiquarian knowledge but also antiquaries are very often well willfully deceived as well that they want like Eliza Stoddart they want to believe something and so they will and they'll be taken in and there are of course a number of successful deceptions. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. If you're enjoying this series you might like to read the many pieces by Rosemary Hill in the LRB archive. Subscribe to the London Review of Books today to save 79% off the cover price and get a free tote bag. Just go to lrb.me forward slash history. That's lrb.me forward slash history or click on the link below. This offer is only available for a limited time. There's a kind of a sliding scale, isn't there, from that romantic attitude towards artefacts that means that you're 
which is you know part of the theory of the picturesque that and I think I think it's just very realistic that we all know that the way we respond to objects is only partly to do with what intrinsically they are partly it is to think that um I don't know this this was touched by the hand of Elizabeth the first or whatever it is it is the associations so in, and in that so they were quite happy sophisticating as it was called making up bits of furniture that were not old, but were looked old and Walter Scott building his well and saying, it's, now it's finished. He said, it looks marvellous. It looks easily medieval. Um, so there's that. But out of that, a combination of that flexibility, plus all the stuff that's flooding into London because the continent is in turmoil. So then there's a market. So there's, there's, sort of, there's fakes done for money. There's things that people know aren't what they look like, but they don't mind. And then, of course, unfortunately and notoriously among the Society of Antiquaries, there are deliberate attempts yeah. to um, deceive each other for the purposes well, of... Well, what would you say about George Stevens's um, row with Richard Goff? In well, terms of, was it, was it... Well, it's... Goff was quite a prickly character and got the backs up of a number of his colleagues. He was the director of the Society of Antiquaries, but the... Which is the person responsible for the publications rather than the actual president. But Goff was the great sort of fixer of antiquarianism of the 18th century and you couldn't do anything without sort of Goff's approval. And he was very critical of anybody who he felt fell short of his quite exacting standards of accuracy and principles of antiquarianism. And he had a low tolerance threshold for what he would describe as sort of journalism or novel writing it he wanted um, well i mean you say that but i mean he was the reviews editor of the gentleman's magazine he was. so he was a journalist i he mean was, I think... but he didn't think of himself as a journalist he what what he objected to was people who wrote without proper footnotes without proper evidence and who just dash things off without doing the proper research. So he's he's kind of like the academic historian now who starts tutting at the BBC for historic history programs. Well, well we've like, just been tutting well, at the yes. anyway, anyway, yeah, so he's he's a classic sort of academic grumbler and we should just say that George Stevens, who was he was a Shakespeare scholar, yeah. he was a collaborator of Dr. Johnson and Johnson described Stevens as living the life of an outlaw. And Johnson, of course, wasn't terribly keen on footnotes and academic apparatus. No, mere antiquary is a rugged being, yes. Well, and also, famously, when asked to acknowledge with the lives of the poets, he asked, was asked to acknowledge the subscribers. He said he couldn't because he'd lost all the names and spent all the money. So, But even he yes. thought that Stevens was a bit slapdash. And so when Richard Goff refused to lend Stevens some books... Possibly afraid that Stevens would lend them to Johnson, who was notorious for turning returning books covered in port and tea and you know unusable. what else. Yes, and Stevens did go to a great deal of trouble to humiliate Richard Goff. But what he did, he went to a lot of trouble to have a stone engraved with an inscription and placed in the window of... I mean, this is another thing that was beginning to happen at this period, as well as a great boom in auction houses, is the beginning of what we now recognise as the modern antique shop. So he got this stone inscribed and put in the window of an antique shop and started a rumour among various friends and allies and probably innocent bystanders that this was the tombstone of Canute, which had been found in Kennington. So everyone was got kind of buzzing around. 
And somebody gave a paper. Well, it was poor old Samuel Pegg. It was poor old Samuel Pegg, yes. He always would have got... been in his... Probably in his 90s. Well, he'd already been pilloried by Horace Walpole. Dick Whittington's cat. Yes, he'd given a paper on Dick Whittington's cat, which hadn't gone down very well. And on the turkey, which he thought came from the East Indies. Pegg was a... He's one of the working bees of the Society of Antiquaries. That's how he liked to describe himself. And he was a clergyman, as so many of the antiquaries were, for whom antiquarianism was really a lifeline, that when he was stuck in rural parishes with little to do and little intellectual stimulation, he could get to grips with the parish registers and local history. And he was an absolute key figure for Society of Antiquaries from the 1720s and 30s through to his death in the 1790s. He was very long-lived and the paper that he gave on Dick Whittington's cat made him a very easy target. In fact, it was a perfectly sensible paper. He pointed out that Dick Whittington, who we know was a real historical figure, made a lot of his money from coastal trading and that a cat is a kind of boat that you would use for this. And he suggested that this was how the idea of it turning into um, you know, a pet cat had happened. But of course... It lent itself to ridicule. It lent itself to ridicule, I'm afraid. And Foote, who was a great comic playwright, wrote a play in which they put the poor old peg and, his, yes. and Dick Whittington and the cat on stage. And this caused Horace Walpole to resign from the Society of Antiquaries. Anyway, Peg, one feels, had barely recovered from this catastrophic event. And of course, he was stuck in Derbyshire. He hadn't come to London. So he was relying on what people were telling him. So he... Well, there was an engraving of it, which yes. was in the gentleman's magazine. Yes, so he would have read it in the read about it in a gentleman's magazine would have seen the engraving and so he comes up with an essay himself and he's a very very loyal contributor to the gentleman's magazine in fact it was probably john nichols who sent it to him because he who was Nich- the editor who was the editor nichols was again another friend of peg peg goff nichols it was a um, close friendship and peg who probably had finished writing his sermon, so he didn't have anything else to do. He, he writes a paper on this, which Nichols very obligingly publishes in the Gentleman's Magazine. At which point Stevens leaps out and says, aha, it was all a con. Gotcha. So, and of course, this did nothing for Stevens's reputation later as a Shakespearean scholar, though he did also make some very good points. I think what's emerging from all this, as we chat on about people who we kind of feel we know, is that the image of the antiquary as this solitary eccentric, as you say, some of them were stuck in the countryside, but as because they were clergymen, but that it was a very social, sociable world with a network with friends, enemies, jokes, arguments... Absolutely. And antiquaries were incredibly well networked, if we look at their correspondence, that what they're doing all the time is writing to each other because there's nobody else (laughs) near them who's interested in what they're doing. So they've got to write to their friend Tyson or their friend Lort or their friend Peg to tell them what they've just discovered or what their thoughts are on reading such and such. And the Gentleman's Magazine, I think, is enormously important, actually, in sustaining this network. And the vibrancy, if we like, of uh, antiquarianism would not have been possible without publications like The Gentleman's Magazine, which was operated in a way like a Facebook page might today, because you wrote in with saying, I found this in my back garden. Does anybody know what it is? And then other people would write in. And the editor, John Nichols, who was printer of the Society of Antiquaries and later a fellow, he was absolutely devoted to the cause of antiquarianism. And he was writing and publishing his his massive history of Leicestershire at the same time. And he really encourages this approach. And he himself puts in sort of fake letters in order to try and elicit a response. That, of course, never happens in magazines now. But um, 
I, exactly. I mean, it's also the part of the way in which this period, as you were saying earlier, the, the move towards active conservation, but the move also outside institutions, the Society of Antiquaries rather in the background, even though a lot of them remain members of it. It is through journalism and also, of course, though it is the Gentleman's Magazine, lots of ladies, lots of ladies, ladies read it, yes. And um, indeed correspond with one another through its pages. And one thing whether they were fake letters or whether they were real letters, it's always a joy when you're reading the back numbers. When somebody writes in with a very definite opinion about this one about the Bayer Tapestry, where somebody writes in and say, well, it's all it's very clear now. Or you, you kind of brace yourself for the next issue where there's going to be a flood of people saying, well, I, I don't know what on earth you think you're talking about. And, and so out of these often out of disputes, but also out of long, long collaborations, people writing backwards and forwards to each other, and in a world that has not yet invented academic disciplines, so it doesn't have to overcome them. You just write to whoever... John Gage has dug up an urn somewhere, a Roman glass urn, and it's got something in it. He doesn't know what it is. He sends it to Humphrey Davy, yeah. takes it to yeah. Humphrey Davy, yeah. and says, what's in what's Chemical this analysis on exactly. it. Exactly. And so, I mean, antiquarians invented predisciplinarity, or at least they didn't invent it. They just did they it. They just did it. I in mean, the way the, our funding councils today are trying to get us to reverse engineer this multidisciplinary working to study the past. Well, no. we. Well, one of the people we were talking about earlier, Dawson Turner, yeah who was a banker who lived um, in Norfolk and was a great friend of Hudson Gurney, the man who was the kind of motor, as you put it, behind the the, the attempt to document the Bayer Tapestry. He started off very much, well, he was a botanist, and he brought, when he started to be interested, he first travelled in France, in Normandy, became fascinated by medieval architecture, and he transferred all his categorising methods from, um, not initially very successfully, it must be said, but his method he took from botany, applied it to architecture, and indeed that was the way in which by observing recurring patterns, you're pre-Darwin here, but um, just seeing how things recur, how things change, what things occur together, what things never occur together, is a way of beginning to understand any typology. Yes, and Thomas Rickman, who's the first really to develop a chronological series of for Gothic architecture. In his early life, he was a great student of different military uniforms, <laughs> and classifying the different, recognising the regiment according to the, the military uniform. And so he's got this sort of early visual recognition of form and style as being a method of discriminating different entities. And this is a very common practice. It is Well, there is, of course, that side of antiquarianism, which is the antiquarian nerd, yes. which is where you get the mere attitude from, that these are people who just collect information and, and matching things. But you do have to do that first before you can move on to your grand narrative. And the other thing that strikes me, now you mentioned Rickman, who was very important, Two things. One was that one reason perhaps he was more successful with Gothic architecture than people before him who tried to date it was that they had looked at the records. Rickman couldn't read the records. He didn't have church Latin, but he did have a very good eye and a very good visual memory. He also had in common with um, Dawson Turner the fact that he was a Quaker. And a lot of these people, whether we're talking about women or Roman Catholics or Quakers, were outside the main English, at least, institutions. Yes, and I mean, I think I wonder with Rickman, one of the reasons he was able to arrive at a slightly more objective, shall we say, perspective on it was that 
he didn't have an interest in that battle between Protestantism and Catholicism about the, who the Gothic arch belongs to, that he was simply observing it as an architectural form rather than it being part of a religious or ideological um, point of faith for him. And so that gives him the kind of objectivity, but yeah, but also for others who come from outside the, well, what we'd call now the establishment, antiquarianism is something, as we were saying earlier, that is open to anybody who wants to engage with it. And you don't have to have had the classical education. You don't have to have been Oxford and Cambridge. I mean, a lot, a lot had gone to Oxford and Cambridge, particularly the clergymen, but that wasn't a, a precondition. Well, they hadn't learned anything there that was of any use to them. No, in no, they, they, they did it despite up. their um, exactly Despite their education. <laughs> and that, of course, brings us back to women, because, I mean, Eliza Stoddard um, is a particularly striking case but again, around the Nicholses, because three generations of Nicholses edited the Gentleman's Magazine and were hugely important to the Society of Antiquaries. And when you read their extensive correspondence, you begin to see in the background, certainly Mary Ann Nichols. There's a penumbra of women who are busy assisting with the family business of antiquarianism and doing their own small, well, not small, quite large part, actually, but their their role is very often ignored because it's not openly acknowledged and it's very often implicit but but clearly they were accompanying their family members on tours and visits and they were often drawing and sketching what was being seen and actually a lot of antiquaries acknowledge their female family members who provided the sketches and the drawings and so they're there but they're also collectors women collect and these are women who don't have large disposable income so they can't buy the Roman antiquities or the paintings from Italy so they collect things which are much more affordable which might very often be native antiquities, English antiquities, or they might be something like autograph collections. And this is, again, a, one of the great sort of phenomena of the early 19th century is the autograph. Well, that was one of the things that John Nichols advised his daughter, that she would like to collect autographs. And we, when we say autographs, we tend to just mean signatures, but they meant it in the literal sense of self-writing. So documents in the hand of either people who were themselves important or simply as a history of orthography. And so it, it has to be said that on the whole, where women were encouraged to do things, they were generally encouraged to do the sort of thing which you could do indoors with clean hands, yes. um, like autographs. But they were, I mean, Dawson Turner, who we've talked about before, when he travelled, particularly in, in France, he went with a very large party with his wife, Mary, who was a trained artist, who was a really very gifted artist and a selection of his many daughters who and they were all they kept these wonderful sort of family albums of their trips where they drew everything they drew important pieces of architecture but they also drew things like horses and nutcrackers just to see if they were different in France yes and he's got these amazing multi-volume grangerized where grangerized where you slip in additional engravings or drawings grangerized volumes of antiquarian texts like Bloomfield's History of North and it's all been done by his, his family, his daughters. And visitors used to describe how the entire family would be up at six, busy on some kind of antiquarian enterprise, whether it's taking notes or making drawings. But the daughters quite clearly 
enjoyed it and they're, they're not made to do it. And that's another thing the visitors recall, that it's not drudgery. They're actually doing it because they want to. And it's their way of engaging with the past and with the world around them. Then also, when one thinks about what women could and couldn't do, and in terms they those girls didn't have to earn their living because their father was a banker, and his friend, Hudson Gurney, who we've also spoken about, also from a prosperous family, had an older half-sister, Anna. And Anna, some illness in her childhood, it's not nowadays clear what, but um, possibly polio, she was paralysed. So she always used a wheelchair. She travelled all over Europe and produced the first English translation of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Yes, and there are a number of women, actually, who learn Anglo-Saxon because Anglo-Saxon is not something you learn at your grammar school or your public school or university. And so you have to teach yourself Anglo-Saxon. And one of the products of this increase in interest in the Anglo-Saxon past in the late 18th century is that there are more Anglo-Saxon grammars available, actually. And so more women are teaching themselves. And Anna Gurn is a very notable example. But the another Sort of female antiquary is Maria Hackett, who also, she wrote, an essay, wrote a review of um, Boswell's um, Anglo-Saxon dictionary for um, John Nichols, and she writes about Roman London. She corresponds with Alfred Kemp. And she, if she can't get to the places where, the doc, where archives are, if she can't get to the British Museum or the Tower, she asks one of her male friends to go and take notes for her. So as a woman, there, there are more barriers, but if you have the connections and the friendships like somebody like Stoddard or Gurney or Hackett does, you can actually achieve quite a lot. And Hackett's extraordinary because she, her nephew was a choir boy at um, Westminster Abbey and she was rather appalled, no, sorry, St Paul's, not Westminster, and she was rather appalled at the way that he was treated. So she had a look at the historical benefactions and the endowments for the choristers and realised that these had gone astray and the dean was doing rather well out of it. And she thought, how widespread is this? So she analysed every single cathedral establishment with choristers to see, and also Oxford and Cambridge colleges, to see what they were doing and where the benefactions had gone astray. And it's a bit like an Ofsted report that she gives them marks for um, ticks if they're doing well and must improve. I think it was St John's was it St John's Cambridge? I can't remember, but there are a couple and Handaf, I think, where she was It's deti- failing. It's failing, yes. <laughs> but also she was I mean, Anna Gurney managed to travel a lot because the people were amazed that she travelled so far, but she pointed out that being rather small and and paralyzed, she said you can just bundle me into a ship. Yes, very portable. And she also invented uh, or helped to um, promote Manby's life-saving rocket, which was a way of rescuing people before lifeboats were invented. And she was there on the Norfolk coast supervising this. Mariah Hackett, much more um, able to be more physically active. And she, of course, got involved in one of the later, in this period later, conservation campaigns, which is of a sort that we recognise very much now. Yes, for Crosby Hall. That she lived, Crosby Hall at this date, this point, was actually in Bishopsgate rather than Cheney Walk. It got moved in the early, 19th, in early 20th century um, when it was threatened by the developments around Liverpool Street Station. And Crosby Hall was one of the very few... 15th century merchants' houses that had actually survived the fire of London. So it was a very rare survival. And it had had a rather chequered history in the 18th century and had been used as a sort of a rallying, rallying, um, 
meeting house, a dissenting group, had been used as a warehouse of the East India Company and was falling into disrepair. And its owner wanted to sell it essentially on a, to be demolished and redeveloped. And Maria Hackett, who lived in Bishopsgate herself, was absolutely outraged at this because what she knew of London history suggested to her that this was actually a very important building in terms of what it represented about London's commercial wealth in the 15th century because it had been a very wealthy grocer, John Crosby, who had built it. And so this is an excellent example of London's commercial strength and the influence of merchants, not the crown. It was also associated with notable literary figures and Shakespeare was known to have lived in the area and actually mentions it in Richard III, which is terribly exciting. Really? Yes, that he tells the Duchess to get high herself to Crosby Hall. And so this was the great point of contact because obviously Shakespeare is the romantic um, apogee, really, in the 18th. If you can connect something to Shakespeare, it's, It's it's, it's fine. Yeah. So an awful lot of effort was invested in trying to trace these connections with Shakespeare. But it was also connected with Thomas More. It was leased to him um, in the early 16th century. And people were very hopeful that he'd written Utopia there, but he hadn't. But he didn't actually live there for very long. And it was also associated with the Sydney family, um, Sir Philip Sydney. So, so many of these 16th century figures who increasingly are becoming part of a pantheon of English history that the 16th century is being um, created as this critical period for the English nation of where you have the Reformation, Protestantism, rise of Parliament, good Queen Bess beating the Spanish. So Crosby Hall represents this, but it's also interesting architecturally because it's an example of domestic architecture. And this is something that, again, romantic antiquarianism is very important in celebrating that as a category, domestic architecture hasn't really been thought about before the early 19th century. Well, there wasn't really, I mean, all this activity, as you say, which was going on um, with church buildings, partly because of the romantics' rediscovery almost of the Reformation, the the decision um, with Catholic emancipation, that the Reformation is the determining event in English and indeed in Scottish history. So, every, And also the fact that the churches are there, so you can do the research. And there are palaces and there are castles, but sources for kind of bourgeois domestic life are very rare. Very rare. But there's this interest in domesticity from the late 18th century as the home being the repository of all the best values, the morals of society, and that domesticity is at the the heart of middle-class identity in in this period. So the domestic manners and the domestic life of people in the past are a key part of defining what it is to be English, that you project back onto the past for manners and morals. Yes, all the, all the, the cups and plates yes. that you've seen in the Bayer Tapestry, exactly. there's a direct line down to Crosby Hall and into the present. Exactly, and Thomas Wright, another antiquary, was absolutely delighted because he realised that the Anglo-Saxons had round tables like the middle classes of today. So there's a, they're essentially Anglo-Saxons with slightly different costume. Um, so there's this interest in domesticity and domestic architecture and a real impetus to start... Um, recording this 
vernacular architecture, which isn't ecclesiastical, which isn't Gothic, and which isn't classical. It's something which is also increasingly being defined as an English style. And Crosby Hall is being held up as being this exemplar of domestic architecture, the great hall where you've got the, the high table, you've got the gallery where the musicians would play, you've got the big fireplace, you've got the oriel window, you've got the plaster ceiling, you've got all these features that are being associated with the sort of vernacular domestic architecture of the 15th and 16th centuries. Yes, because and lots of people, as you say, the, the sources are very few, but people feel very familiar with it because they are reading uh, Walter Scott's novels, yes. uh, which is full of you know feasting in the Baron's Hall and all this kind of thing, and to- and Joseph Nash's Mansions of England yes. in the, the Olden Time. Times, yeah. uh, uh, which is beautifully illustrated and picks real houses, but picks the Olden Times have to start after the Reformation. Yeah. You can't show anything Roman Catholic, so that is all going on in the background, and. I suppose one should describe the fight for Crosby Hall as a kind of a fairly honourable defeat. I mean, it wasn't exactly a win. Well, I mean, so Mariah Hackett uses her networks with the Gentleman's Magazine and others to try and sum up interest in Crosby Hall. And, she, I mean, she gets some good names on the, the list. So all the, a lot of the leading architects and people like Bloor and Salvin and Tupany. And they restore part of it and they have a splendid um, celebratory opening banquet where they strew rushes on the floor and have a baron of beef and um, play music and it's this interesting combination of restoring what was there but also as you're saying the, the faking they didn't mind putting in what they thought was appropriate decor and reusing the leftovers from the coronation fittings. So they got them cheap from Westminster Abbey, the drugget and other elements to, to well, decorate Well, it's very... It. it is about how it makes you feel. Yes. And the, um, like, Rush Merrick, who wanted mm. to buy um, the medieval castle, um, and when they wouldn't sell it to him, he just built a modern one right next to it. Yeah. Um, so it, it's it's an elastic idea, but those debates about conservation. So and part of it, of course, was not saved. And one of the yeah. big um, the the ceiling from the hall. Yes, Cottingham it, took it. Cotting, yes, Cotting, Lewis Cottingham, another antiquary, and took architect. it and architect took it and put it in his own museum, sort of house museum of the sort that people who know Sir John Soane's museum in which survives in London. But there were many others. Few as distinguished as Soane's, but Cottingham had in the Waterloo Road his own museum like this, and he saved the ceiling from Crosby Hall, the timber ceiling. Plenty of people looked at it. Pugin must have seen it because he copied it at Taymouth Castle. So it became very... It's copied several places, at Arundel and at King's and Cambridge. It's copied all over the place, yeah. And at the same time, it's taken out of circulation, but then it's everywhere. And when Cottingham died people's attitudes to conservation had moved on again and nobody would buy... There was a campaign to save his collection for the nation, uh, which was defeated, and most of it was just chucked away. And I don't think... Do we know where the ceiling ended up? I can't recall that we do. No, I don't think we do. I think the real actual ceiling... Tell us where it is. Somebody... Yes, no. So they'll they'll all be reaching for their pens or their keyboards out there now as we speak. 
And the thing about Crosby Hall is, yes, part of it is destroyed. It carries on. It, I mean, because Mariah Hackett has organised this campaign, raises some money, not enough, has to invest a lot of her own money. And she's not a wealthy woman. She's an independent woman. She's not wealthy. Um, she gets exhausted micromanaging it, so then tells other people to take over. Then gets leased and is used for kind of adult education. It's then turned into a, a restaurant. And then in the late 19th century, it's under threat again with Liverpool Street developments. And it's going to be pulled down. But because of its history of having been preserved in the 19th century and by a woman, quite apart from the fact that it's John Crosby, possibly Shakespeare, it's vernacular architecture, etc., it's the campaign of the earlier 19th century and Mariah Hackett's role in it that actually helps to build up the support that means that it's not demolished and enables Patrick Geddes to organise its Removal, removal, lock, stock and barrel. And it's reconstructed down in Cheney Walk, where it's then owned by the University of London, uses a woman's hostel, and it's now in private ownership. So it's had a very chequered history where it keeps on being reinvented. And it's, so it's been constantly... Yes, and every, uh, every stage, there is always a tremendous row. And it moves on to the next stage, which really... Well, let's hope it's going to settle down for another couple of hundred years now because it is in itself like a sort of time capsule of... Different attitudes to conservation and preservation, yeah. And indeed to material fabric because... You know, does it matter that we've, we've had the same axe for 16 years, it's had four new heads and five new handles? At what point does the thing itself cease actually to cease authentic. to exist? Yeah. Not a question that we're ever likely to settle. I mean, I think one can say, without being too hard on the Victorians, but after the middle of the 19th century, all these questions that exercise us a lot now about, well, what is it that you've preserved? And have you really preserved something? Can you really preserve something? What degree? I mean, the, the paradox, of course, is that if you really want to preserve something, the very last thing you can afford to do is leave it alone. Mm. So how much do you intervene? But I always feel that after the middle of the 19th century with Prince Albert and the Great Exhibition and the categorising of things and the development of history as a, um, an academic discipline that people get really rather more literal-minded about it. And that one of the reasons the Romantics didn't mind about it so much is because they understood it didn't really matter. Yeah, and they didn't think it mattered because they thought it served a different purpose. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's in many ways a very different attitude to the past than the one that we have. And people tend to be very suspicious of the sort of romantic associations that antiquaries always put upon material objects. And if you read their memoirs and biographies, it almost always starts with encountering some antiquity as a child, whether it's going to Stonehenge or digging a barrow or um, picking up an object and feeling that they've got a tangible relationship with the past and it conjures up images from what they've been reading, whether it's a historical novel. So they're quite happy to for their historical inspiration to be Walter Scott rather than the actual sort of historical narrative, but at these fictional um, recreations. And they're always talking about, as a boy, I had images of Caesars and um, Pompey's trampling over this territory, or I had images of um, uh, Elizabethan courtier. And these, so this kind of romantic engagement with the past and this sort of empathetic relationship with the past is absolutely central to what people thought they were doing. Well, Scott, of course, was an antiquary first and was hugely influential. And Macaulay was quite 
open. I mean, he was absolutely the opposite opinion from Richard Gough, that he was going to make history as readable as Walter Scott's novels. And he's he's absolutely open about that. Um, and his history, when it was published in 1848, he said, you know, I hope that it will, for rather irritatingly said, he said, hope that for a while at least it would replace the latest novel um, on the tables of young ladies. But what he meant and he's got no scruples about filling, you know, yeah, colouring in all the details. Yeah. But Stoddart, who I think is in many ways a much better historian than Macaulay, though obviously less famous, but he says these wonderful um, letters when home when he was walking, just walking in Kent at a time when... Roman antiquities were just lying around on the beach. All sorts of stuff was washed up. Nobody was interested in this. But when he said he said that to study the past um, was to travel in yes. times other than our own, yeah. and that sense that you can be transported and that you need to bring your imagination with you in order to really understand the present. Yeah. Because how did you get here? Why is he on the beach surrounded by broken Roman remains? He needs to understand how we all got here. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rohi. Thank you. Lovely to talk about all our dead friends. It is. Always a pleasure. And next time, I'll be joined by Neil McGregor and we'll be going from the battlefield of Waterloo to the Modern Museum. Thank you for listening. This series was inspired by Rosemary Hill's book, Time's Witness. To buy a copy from the London Review Bookshop, just go to lrb.me forward slash hill or click on the link below.